This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments. My name is Kurt Wolf, and I'm flying solo on the podcast today as my co-host Chris Ekimoff is actually in flight as we're recording this episode. As I noted up top, and as our longtime listeners know, this podcast usually focuses on securities regulatory issues. But today we're going to go in a slightly different direction. Longtime listeners will recall that in addition to current and former members of the SEC staff, we've spoken with folks from FINRA, the MSRB, NASA, and the CFP board. In an effort to continue rounding out our coverage, today we have a first for you. I am very excited to say that I will be speaking with CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham, our first ever guest from the CFTC. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, better known as the CFTC, oversees derivatives markets. Think commodity futures contracts for agricultural commodities or precious metals. More on the CFTC's scope and mandate from the commissioner in just a moment. These markets are huge. To quote Investopedia, the derivatives market is, in a word, gigantic often estimated at over $1 quadrillion on the high end. How can that be? Largely because there are numerous derivatives in existence, available on virtually every possible type of investment asset, including equities, commodities, bonds, and currency. So for us here at Insecurities, this is a gaping hole in our catalog, and we're excited to fill that void today with our wonderful guest, CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham. Commissioner Pham was sworn in as a CFTC Commissioner in April 2022. Commissioner Pham is an internationally recognized leader in financial services, compliance, and regulatory strategy and policy, with deep expertise in derivatives and capital markets and emerging issues such as digital innovation. Her substantial experience spans key international issues such as prudential regulation and systemic risk, financial markets, including currencies and commodities, fintech and digital assets, ESG, and the impact of major disruptions like the savings and loan crisis, the 2008 great financial crisis, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to her appointment, Commissioner Pham advised boards of directors, executive and senior management, policymakers and regulators, and industry leaders on changes to the regulatory landscape and implications and risks of emerging issues, trends, and economic and market developments to the global financial system, markets, and banking. Commissioner Pham was previously a managing director at a large global financial institution where she served on a firm-wide governance forum and held various senior roles in the Chief Administrative Office, Legal, Compliance, and the Institutional Clients Group, including as Head of Capital Markets, Regulatory Strategy and Engagement, Deputy Head of Global Regulatory Affairs, Global Head of Swap Dealer and Volcker Compliance, and most recently, Head of Market Structure for Strategic Initiatives. Commissioner Pham's past experience in the public and private sectors includes serving as special counsel and policy advisor to former CFTC Commissioner Scott O'Malia and 
in enforcement at the CFTC, SEC, and Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Really ticks all the boxes, all the things we care about here on the Insecurities Podcast. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Insecurities. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say that it still cracks me up every time I hear the name of the podcast. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's dive into it here. We want to sort of start off with a softball question for any of our listeners who don't know a lot about the CFTC. I suspect folks are familiar with it, but let's just set a baseline. Can you sort of tell us what is the commission's, the CFTC's mandate, and what corners of the market does the CFTC cover? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It is really an honor to be the first CFTC commissioner on this podcast. And I hope that I'm just the beginning of a continuing trend because (laughs) the markets that the CFTC oversees are, as you noted, the biggest markets in the world. And they are absolutely critical to the proper functioning of the global financial system and the economy. So it's really, like I said, just quite an honor. I will give my standard disclaimer before I keep going to say that the views I express today are just those of my own as a commissioner and do not necessarily represent that of the CFTC or of any other commissioner. So just to talk about what is the CFTC, so just to do from a the key facts. So we are a commission mm-hmm. just like the SEC. There are five independent commissioners that are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. There are three that are in the majority from the president's party and two uh, that would be from the minority party. So it functions the same way that the SEC does. The commission is the head of the agency. And in order for the agency to do any final agency action, it does require a vote from the commission. So that includes things like rulemakings, of course, but it includes orders and it includes enforcement actions. So decisions to file a complaint in federal courts or decisions to enter into consent orders. Those all require an an act, a final agency action. We also do orders of registration and so forth. And just like your listeners will be familiar, while the SEC oversees the securities markets, we oversee the derivatives markets. And what does that mean? Like you mentioned, you can have an underlying on pretty much anything out there, not just traditional physical commodities like ags or energy, oil, gold, silver, other precious metals, but also financial commodities, which include rates, indices, benchmarks. Also, if you think about weather, you we have weather derivatives, which are very important, obviously, for many companies around the world to hedge their risks, particularly uh, in the agricultural sector, but many others as well. And of increasing importance when we think about uh, the transition and the impacts of adverse and extreme weather events. One of the things that I like to kind of paint the picture of is a quick, easy way to kind of look at what is a commodity. So what is it that we oversee? While the SEC has exclusive jurisdiction of the securities markets, if it's not a security, which technically, by the way, is a commodity. So if it's not a security, then it's probably something that we have regulatory touch points over. And I also like to point out that the CFTC has a unique position because we really do sit at the intersection of the real economy and the financial markets. So all of the businesses out there, airlines, manufacturers, producers, growers, but banks and asset managers, all of them use derivatives for risk management and price discovery. And that's really the purpose 
of our markets is to promote price discovery and risk management. And our mission is really twofold. So on the one hand, we are here to promote market integrity and ensure that the derivatives markets are well-functioning and serve that dual purpose of risk management and price discovery. But we also have a very important mission, which is to prevent fraud, manipulation, and abuse in our markets. It, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about how the SEC and CFTC compare on the fly as you go, right? I mean, at the SEC, of course, we, we talk a lot about capital formation, uh, which is kind of different than price discovery and risk management. Um, but I think structurally, it sounds like the agencies are, are pretty similar in terms of how they how they function, right? I, I love the point that sort of the SEC has securities and, and you have everything else. Maybe that's not a direct quote, but I like it. That's how I'll retell it. Uh, so it does seem like- You can it, quote me on that. Okay, will do. <laughs> it it seems like that creates the possibility for some some overlap perhaps, between the two agencies. And I know it's something that I think you've talked about a little bit before. In a recent dissent from a CFTC enforcement action, we won't name any names or talk about particular cases, but you noted how the SEC and the CFTC use similar terms of art, right? And that has the potential to to maybe muddy the water because the underlying concepts are similar. There certainly would appear, as you noted, to be some overlap with respect to certain products or market segments. So I, I would like to kind of tease out a little bit more on this point about intersectionality. So, I mean, from your position, where do you see the SEC and the CFTC kind of bump into one another? A very important question and a question that has existed since the CFTC was first formed and established. So maybe I'll do a little bit more of a history lesson, which will help set the stage for answering this question. So a couple things that I also wanted to share with everybody is when you think about the mission and the purpose of the CFTC, and this actually will tee up a lot of the topics we'll cover during this podcast, the SEC has a very clear mission for investor protection and capital formation. And information asymmetry is high at the top of the list of one of the key issues that the our system of securities laws and regulation is designed to address. So disclosure is a key component of the SEC. The SEC is a rules-based regulator and very focused on having prescriptive rules because you want to make sure that the disclosures have the right information that is material to investor. But for the CFTC, we don't have investors in our markets per se. I, I often object when people say, what are you doing for investors? Because what we have in our markets, if you want to go really old school, is we have hedgers and speculators. We have end users, agricultural growers and producers, but manufacturers and merchandisers and everybody else who's involved in the real economy, like I said, mm-hmm. who need to hedge their risks. And you need somebody else who's willing to take the other side of that and provide liquidity. So that way you can have an efficient risk transfer market. And that's why people talk about the CFTC having these institutional markets, because these are typically big corporates. And then you have uh, banks that are dealers that are intermediaries. We have a lot of other market structure and market participants that we oversee and regulate. So just the same way that the eight regulates securities exchanges and clearing agencies, we oversee designated contract markets, which are futures exchanges derivatives clearing organizations, which are clearing houses, swap execution facilities, which is a trading platform for swaps, which is uh, post.frank, swap data repositories, 
swap dealers, future commission merchants, which are like brokers, oftentimes are dual registered as broker dealers, commodity pool operators, commodity trading advisors, and other entities. So it really is, in many ways, not quite a mirror, but very mm-hmm. analogous to the SEC's framework, regulatory framework, minus the prescriptive part, because we are principles-based regulator. But also, if you look around the world, and we're both members of IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, most market regulators around the world have the same type of setup. And we were established by statute as an independent agency in 1974. But we have been in existence since the beginning of the 20th century, And we were part of the Department of Agriculture. Actually, the CFTC's offices used to be in the basement of the Department of Agriculture, (laughs) which is really funny. And so the Commodity Exchange Act is our main statute act. And as I said, there's going to be a history lesson. Historically, it gave us regulatory authority over the commodity futures and options markets, which have existed since the 1860s. But over time, as we gave some of these examples, it includes energy and metals, commodities like crude oil, copper, gold, silver. We oversee exchanges for financial products like interest rates and foreign currency. And most recently, exchanges specializing in futures relating to digital assets. And the Dodd-Frank Act dramatically expanded our oversight and jurisdiction to oversee the swaps market, which is about 12 times the size of the futures market. And I think right now, after you kind of net out some things, it's probably around 400 trillion in notional value that we see in the swaps markets, our swaps markets. So when we think about where do you bump up against the CFTC and the SEC's jurisdiction, the recent headlines and debate and discussion is not the first time. Usually when you have innovation in new products or new markets, these questions arise. And so I think one of the earliest examples of this question arising was the and how it got worked out between the two agencies was the Shad Johnson Accord, or maybe as we like to say, the Johnson Shad Accord. So that was the <laughs> CFTC chairman, Philip McBride Johnson, who actually was my professor when I was in huh. law school for derivatives, and SEC chairman, I believe, John Shad. And they realized that people had some questions about some of these derivatives products and how they were being documented and which regulator had the jurisdiction. So the two agencies, the two chairmen and their staffs came together. They talked it out. They created the Shad Johnson Accord. That was one of the earliest versions. And it's come up from time to time when we think about security futures products. Dodd-Frank, of course, kind of split it up, swaps versus security-based swaps uh, between the two agencies. Mm -hmm. And it is usually specific. It's facts and circumstances. And one of the things that's very nice about it is that the legal profession, the securities and derivatives bar is very engaged in this because derivatives are highly structured, documented financial instruments. And so it's absolutely essential that we have product lawyers who are engaged and there are many professional associations that get involved in that debate. So Maybe that sort of lays the big picture landscape. One of the things that was interesting was that the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000 lifted the ban on trading security futures. And so that was one of the first major acts that established a framework for the joint regulation of these products by the two commissions. So what is a security future? There's futures on single securities and futures on narrow-based security indexes. 
And so those would be subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the... Then we have some other products where you can trade them on CFTC-designated contract markets that are also notice registered with the SEC or on any SEC-registered exchange or platform that is notice-designated as a contract market by the CFTC. There's actually a very big case that recently looked at security futures and this question of the jurisdictional delineation, and so that's the Spikes case. Mm-hmm. That Just recently, there was a, a major a decision that came out on that. And um, we talked about Dodd-Frank, and so our rules to regulate swaps have been in place actually since 2012, And over time, we've added to them and we've refined them. And so we are really very proud of the tremendous work that we've done in a very short amount of time to establish a comprehensive regulatory framework for the oversight of swaps. And it's global. The other thing that people don't realize is that the CFTC has this global jurisdiction, much broader than the SEC's jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. because the securities markets are very much domestic in nature with some extraterritorial applications, big cases like Morrison v. National Australia Bank. So for this global jurisdiction that Dodd-Frank gave us over the swaps market, a lot of times people don't realize that we oversee the biggest banks in the world. We oversee GSIBs, both U.S. and non-U.S. They're registered with us as swap dealers. We oversee the biggest exchanges and clearinghouses in the world uh, that are systemically important. And we share that with the Fed for the U.S. ones. And so what I used to tell people in my previous role is that the SEC's enforcement jurisdiction in particular, because we have enforcement jurisdiction not only over commodity derivatives, but over spot commodities, which we'll dig into later, I know. And for this jurisdiction over spot commodities, the idea is that the stream of commerce in a commodity can impact the price of the futures contract or the other derivative that is on it. So it's important that we have that anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority over the commodities markets. And if you think about it, I'm not sure what U.S. regulator has broader enforcement authority than us, than maybe the Department of Justice. The Fed certainly has very broad global jurisdiction over the bank holding companies that are registered with us. It's But otherwise, I think people are really surprised. Sometimes I say the first time you might hear about the CFTC is when it shows up on your doorstep with a billion dollar fine. (laughs) Uh, That that would be unfortunate, I think, if it was your doorstep. (laughs) But the the point is well taken. I I don't know that I've thought about it like that myself, I have to say. But I would love to dig into enforcement a little bit more because that's what I spend most of my days thinking about. So I'm glad we're heading in the right direction here, at least from my perspective. Chris isn't here to put me off and want to talk about accounting. So we can talk about enforcement. Obviously, it has to be a critical part of the CFTC's mission, particularly given the breadth of the mandate. So let's, again, set a baseline here. I want to hear a little bit more about CFTC and fish, CFTC enforcement, How many cases does the CFTC bring every year? What are the amounts of penalties or disgorgement that are imposed? What kinds of cases does the Division of Enforcement bring? Yep. So our Division of Enforcement is small but mighty. 
So it identifies, <laughs> investigates, and prosecutes alleged violations of the Commodity Exchange Act and our commission regulations. And violations are the typical ones that you would expect uh, for civil actions like fraud, misappropriation, manipulation. We also have disruptive trading practices authority that was given to us uh, in Dodd-Frank. We were given a very powerful tool in Dodd-Frank, which was actually modeled on the SEC's Rule 10b-5 Fraud Enforcement Authority as well, which we may dig into later. We also have a whistleblower office, and it receives tips, complaints, and referrals of potential violations. We have market surveillance programs as well to analyze trade data to identify trading or positions that warrant further enforcement inquiry. I'll talk a bit about some of the statistics from 2022 because we don't yet have our metrics from 2023. But if if you look at our enforcement track record, it is very robust. Mm-hmm. We, like I said, have been very active across a wide breadth of actions. So our fiscal year ends on September 30th, uh, just like the SEC's. And so For fiscal year 2022, our enforcement actions included 53 administrative cases and 29 civil injunctive cases. Most of the enforcement actions do involve multiple type of violations, but here are some of the primary ones. So out of the 82 total actions, most of them, about 31, involved fraud. The next highest number of cases involved reporting and record keeping. So I think that was 18 Um, Illegal off-exchange contracts and failure to register with the CFTC was about a dozen. And then we had seven spoofing cases and seven supervision violations for the swap dealer business conduct standards. And in fiscal year 2022, the CFTC obtained orders imposing over $2.5 billion in restitution, disgorgement, and civil monetary penalties either through settlement or litigation. And again, remember, we only have about 170 attorneys in our division of enforcement. And so those are very impressive results Mm -hmm. when you think about really just the compared to the SEC in particular. Because when you look at the SEC statistics with the vastly different sizes and budgets of the agencies, (laughs) the SEC filed 760 enforcement actions and recovered $6.4 billion in penalties and disgorgement on behalf of investors. But our budget is, I think, usually a couple hundred million dollars. I think the SEC's budget is like $4 billion. So you can see in comparing the size of yeah. the agencies how impressive the results that we have gotten are. Yeah, th- no, that's absolutely right. And again, it's helpful context just to think about the, the resources that you have at your disposal to do this important job. So the results are very impressive. We we have just sort of come through the end of the fiscal year. It, it wasn't noticed as much as in years past because there was so much talk about a potential government shutdown, but it, it did happen. The, the fiscal year ended. I, I wonder now, the stats aren't out yet, but if you have any thoughts thinking back over the last fiscal year, are there any significant cases or trends or themes that you might tease out from that last year of enforcement that you think are important to underscore for folks listening? Yes. So the CFTC, like any other regulator, particularly an enforcement agency, I like to remind people that, yes, it is true. We are an enforcement agency, just like the SEC. We have other tools. I like to think that regulators have sort of three main tools in the toolkit. So we have the authority to inspect or examine. We have the authority to enforce, which is self-explanatory. 
and we have the authority to regulate, which I tend to like to use more. And I think we should do more of that. Mm-hmm. And so we have all those tools, but enforcement is certainly the one that is the fastest and that we rely upon a great deal to ensure that we are, in fact, preventing fraud, manipulation, and abuse in our markets, and that we are upholding justice and uh, protecting victims. So one of the things that we've addressed through enforcement is, of course, the uh, breadth of scams in the crypto sector. So Mm -hmm. we've brought quite a few very big cases, oftentimes alongside the DOJ and the SEC. We had one that was also alongside the FTC. So these types of parallel enforcement actions are very important, and it's great to be able to coordinate across all of the different agencies in the United States to make sure that we are policing this sector strongly. And you always want to be thinking about emerging risks and trends, and that's something that's been very important in my career. So the chairman has recently highlighted, I think we may have had about a third of our cases in the last year actually were to deal with uh, fraud or other violations in uh, crypto. Hmm. And in fact, I think the biggest ever single penalty that we've ever assessed I think is about $1.7 billion. That was last year. That was actually for a South African Bitcoin Ponzi scheme. Hmm. So once again, this underscores uh, the point that I was making earlier, which is that our jurisdiction is truly global. And this was a spot Bitcoin Ponzi scheme. And so we do have that enforcement authority over spot markets. So it was very impressive for us to be able to coordinate with the foreign authorities to bring an action like that to to work in both the South African and the U.S. legal system Mm -hmm. and the courts to be able to get that with restitution for the victims. There are a number of cases that I have been focused on and dissented on or released statements on in the past year. And so some of the things that one in particular that I'd like to highlight is the statement that I did in the CFTC's complaint against Archegos. And so this is nothing about the merits of the alleged conduct at issue. It absolutely, when you have what may be uh, failures in risk management or other types of disruptive trading practices uh, must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, but it also needs to be prosecuted under the appropriate legal frameworks. And so one of the things that I had identified as an issue with the CFTC's complaint is that we don't actually have jurisdiction over ETF swaps. That would be a swap on an ETF. An ETF is a single security. Therefore, it's a security-based swap. So I had put out a statement to that effect And just recently, a New York federal judge permanently dismissed the CFTC's complaint with prejudice after finding that the CFTC exceeded its regulatory jurisdiction with its claims. And so that was also a case where the SEC, the actually the full commission, had followed up on a staff FAQ, like a division of trading and markets FAQ, with an amicus brief in that action. 
to make clear their jurisdiction. So I guess this is one of the other ways that we resolve our jurisdictional issues. So sometimes <laughs> it can be cooperative through accords and sometimes it ends up being in court. So there is certainly a flip side there. So that was something where I was pleased that the court had affirmed my view. Very interesting. I, I don't know. It, it, it's certainly nicer, I think, maybe when you have the accords, but maybe more fun when they're litigated matters. I don't, that, that, maybe that's I my like own view. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like being right. So I appreciated that part of it. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. So that's a helpful look back. Obviously, the work continues. And, and we're sort of, we're on day five or six here of, of a new fiscal year. But I wonder, what are some of the enforcement priorities or, or maybe some shifts in priorities or, or programmatic changes that you would like to see for the commission going forward? And, and again, we're sort of thinking about enforcement here, but, but where would you like to see them go? Absolutely. So I'll lay out what I see as thematically my three enforcement priorities. And then I'd like to highlight a couple of the areas that I've been outspoken on, which advances the priorities that I'm laying out. So the first one to me is management accountability. This is incredibly important, especially when you're dealing with large financial institutions, because you really want to make sure that the people who are the decision makers and who make the decision over the resources that are being allocated towards little c compliance with the rules and regulations are on the hook. And I think that is something that's important to me, um, particularly as a former compliance officer. I do not want to see it's the chief compliance officer who is having to sign a certification under penalty of law and not to have the CEO do that self-same certification alongside the CCO. This actually was in one of the, the DOJ, I think, memoranda alerts that came out last year. And it actually was, I think my statement might have been first, but there's no, I'm sure there's, that's totally coincidental. It's still good to be purely right. It sure is purely <laughs> coincidental. But I had, I had done a, a statement to that effect where I said, that management must be held accountable and that the CEO must self-certify alongside the CCO if that is what we are requiring, which is consistent with the DOJ policy, it turns out. So I'm pleased to say that since then, I do believe that the Division of Enforcement has followed or implemented that approach. And so that is something I think is, is very good. And, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that we are holding management accountable mm -hmm. since they are the ones that control resources and make the decisions. A second priority for me is in making sure that we're providing regulatory clarity in our speaking orders, and in particular, that we're providing clear expectations for compliance. As many of your listeners are familiar, I too, just like all of you, would pour over every speaking order to try yeah. to read the facts, look at how the law was applied and try to discern what was it that was the violative conduct at issue and then go perform a internal review, do a lessons learned exercise, identify if there were any similar areas that could be enhanced based upon the most recent description of what the commission's expectations were and then, uh, and then implement them. So this is something that the private sector does every single day, constantly 
right. uh, and continuously improving. So because I used to have to read these orders and I know how important they are and have to present on them to governance forums, I want to make sure that our orders are possible because when we do that, we are achieving three key objectives. So that's to provide the regulatory clarity and clear expectations for compliance, like I said, but also to deter future violations to the greatest extent possible. And finally, three, to avoid disruption to the markets and market participants. So I can talk a little bit more about my thoughts on speaking orders because I have a lot of them, but that's my second priority. And then the last one, which I think is very important for my enforcement priorities, is to make sure that we are upholding our jurisdiction to the fullest extent of the law. So one of my statements that actually got a lot of attention was not even on a CFTC enforcement action, but it was on SEC v. Wahi. And one of the things in that statement, which I think people sort of missed, <laughs> is that I was, frankly, criticizing the CFTC for not using our broad authority for misappropriation under the Dodd-Frank Act amendments, the Commodity Exchange Act, to prosecute what could arguably have been within our jurisdiction. So why are we sitting on our hands? Why are we not using our jurisdiction to the fullest extent to ensure that we are protecting the markets and the public? So that's the last priority that I have. So management accountability, providing regulatory clarity, and upholding our jurisdiction to the fullest extent. Well, I think at least with respect to the last one or Wahi, we're going to talk a little bit about maybe how that plays in with the sort of who's grabbing crypto. <laughs> we can tease that out a little bit later, but if you would like to say more about, about speaking orders, yes. I think it's fascinating. And I'd love to sort of hear your view on maybe how that should happen or what clarity looks like in speaking orders. Yes. So there's sort of three three themes in my statements over the past year on enforcement actions that I'd like to highlight. So I'd like to talk about speaking orders. And I want to talk about self-reporting, which I think is a very key mm -hmm. part that kind of goes hand in hand with the speaking orders. And then finally, in a clever twist of words, examination by enforcement. So everybody, you've heard <laughs> a lot about regulation by enforcement, but let me tell you about examination by enforcement. So that is one of my latest things. When we talk about speaking orders, as is probably evident from my many statements and my, Mary, my many footnotes to things like the Federalist Papers and to John Locke's second treatise on government and to tyranny, <laughs> separation of powers and the Constitution, it is incredibly important to me that we adhere to this public responsibility to follow administrative law and best practices for policymaking. And so that is something that I believe deeply. It was something that I was very active in law school. I went to GW Law, which has a very strong administrative law practice. And I externed for a judge my first summer after, or my summer after the first year of law school. So I actually was at the Court of Federal Claims hmm. working for former Chief Judge Lawrence Smith, and he was the trial judge on Windstar, which was a seminal case that established the liability of the United States for monetary damages for changing the laws 
particularly capital requirements, that immediately caused a number of savings and loans to be undercapitalized and then subject to closure. Mm -hmm. So yes, the US government can change the law, but we would have to pay damages. So it was very exciting for me the summer after my first year of law school to basically show up and on day two be headed into a 30-day bench trial <laughs> where there was a $7 billion institution that had failed. Um, there were hundreds of millions of dollars in alleged uh, damages, and it was really just jumping right into it. And a lot of that obviously was around financial regulation and laws and the acts of the financial regulators and other instrumentalities of the United States government. So all of that, and I continued to extern for my judge throughout law school, as well as, as you mentioned, intern in enforcement at the CFTC, the SEC, and the OCC. So I, I clearly was trying to, I don't, I like to stay busy. It, all of that really colored and informed yeah. my approach now as a commissioner and being in the private sector and being on the other end of it too as well. So with the speaking orders, like I said, there's three key objectives that I look for in, in every speaking order. So again, to provide regulatory clarity and clear expectations for compliance, to deter future violations to the greatest extent possible, and to avoid disruption to the markets and market participants. So I think we, we absolutely have to make sure that we are comprehensive in using our prior interpretations of the Commodity Exchange Act, so guidance that the commission, if we are relying upon guidance, I think that should be included as precedent in our speaking orders. We shouldn't be letting the legal bar be playing a guessing game mm -hmm. over what the standard is. We should just state it. So that's something that's been very important to me, that we make sure we are comprehensive and we include all the appropriate legal precedents. And if there is a legal precedent that we are not following, we should explain why not. So two examples of this were a case that we did for the first ever spoofing violation in voice brokered swaps markets. I will not bore your listeners with what is a voice brokered swaps market, but it was the first time. And the full commission had put through notice and comment a interpretive guidance and policy statement on our disruptive trading practices authority, which laid out certain standards and we had not cited to it in the speaking order. And I thought that was a big miss hmm. because when you are bringing for the first time a violation that is novel, people need to understand as much as possible, what was it right. that was a violation? It's just very common sense. And as a compliance officer, I would have been going nuts trying to figure out where do I draw the line between right. what is perfectly normal market activity versus something that apparently the CFTC thinks is spoofing? So that's one thing that I put out a statement on and then kind of did my manifesto on speaking orders. So that's one thing. The other thing is that we really need to include enough information about the facts, like I said, that people can kind of figure out what is the, the violative fact pattern. That can be a delicate balancing act. Because oftentimes the respondents don't necessarily want to include a lot of the facts. And on the other hand, you need to be able to be clear enough about it. So that is something that I think right. is, it's something that has to be worked through. So that's just sort of an example there on speaking orders. But um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to dig more into it. Well, so I'll, I will ask a question on that because I think sometimes you're right. It is delicate, right? When I'm talking to the, the enforcement staff and, and trying to figure out how is, how is an order going to read, let's assume it's a settled matter. 
sometimes I, I care more about how actually the remedial conduct is described or some of the the mitigating factors, right? Because maybe my client wants that good story to be out there, if there's a good story to tell. And I actually think as someone who reads a lot of enforcement releases and orders, I find it very helpful to read those sections and find out, well, what are the things for which an individual or a company is getting some kind of credit? Right. It, clarity in that way, I think, is important. So I don't know if that's what you're thinking about when, when in talking about speaking orders, but I wonder how you think about that type of information being included. Absolutely. That is a key part of it as well, because like I said, you want to understand what was the violation so then you can do sort of a proactive internal review and see if you've got any of the same similar deficiencies um, or misconduct or other issues. But you also want to know what does good look like? You need to know what does good look like and what does bad look like. And this is kind of a theme that comes throughout my approach to things. I like to be pretty plain spoken. Like when I, you've heard me say before, I think 90% of any new or emerging area, particularly one that is rife with fraud, which could be crypto, could be others. We do a lot of retail, foreign exchange scams, which is also an important part of uh, protecting retail, the public, the retail public. But don't lie don't cheat, don't steal. That's like 90% of it. And then the other 10% is probably have a really good lawyer. So because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these product definitions, like I said, or so a lot of the requirements are incredibly complex. And I, I think there were over 2000 pages of swap policy and procedures that I had to oversee and maintain in the past. And I might be missing a couple hundred pages there. So it's a lot. Anyway, so yes. So what was mitigating, like what was there in the remediation, particularly if it was a proactive remediation that the respondent had already begun during the course of the investigation, particularly if it led to some kind of cooperation credit. I think it's very important to include that in the speaking order and to have that spelled out. But another thing that's important is the undertakings, hmm. because the undertakings will tell you also what was it that the commission had agreed to address the deficiency or the issue. And so if you're being proactive about it, you're going to want to include those same types of undertakings in a proactive review and enhancement of your policies, procedures, systems, and processes. So it's important. It's important to be able to be aware of, and it is a moving target, right? Mm -hmm. The commissions do evolve in their thinking. And in Washington, personnel is policy. And so different commissions will take different views on things. And so I think that's really important. But the, this is a good segue into self-reporting which is another important topic that I've spoken about in the past. And this is, again, informed by my experience in the private sector. So at the CFTC, we do have this longstanding policy of recognizing cooperation, self-reporting, and remediation in our enforcement orders. And so that can include in reductions in penalties. And this has been set forth over the years in various enforcement advisories and our enforcement manual. And so some of the factors that we consider include self-reporting of misconduct, cooperation during the course of the investigation, and engaging in substantial remediation to address the misconduct and to develop or strengthen related internal controls. So we have a couple different standards that we use. So there's like substantial or material as far as the level of cooperation or remediation. And then that would sort of have a proportional connection to the level of recognition and potential reduction in penalties. But one of the things that I noticed in the private sector was that firms do take varying approaches when it comes to self-reporting compliance program or risk management program issues. 
And the CFTC has done a number of really high profile enforcement actions, like many in the eight figures for these types of violations that arguably do not have a a direct customer harm Mm -hmm. or, or harm to market integrity. And so one of the ways that I think about this is our rules do require that firms establish an effective program. I mean, I think that if, if you consider what do our rules require and what you need to do in order to ensure that should you have the worst happen and you have a, an issue or a violation, that you are able to get the maximum credit for cooperation, right? So, and self-reporting. So I, I do think it's important that our registrants establish an effective program to identify, escalate, and self-report material or potentially material non-compliance issues to us or any other regulatory authorities that are relevant. And, but this is like already usually included in escalation policies. And there's a number of DOJ memoranda on corporate compliance and Uh things like that as well. Um, So there should be incentives to do so based on our cooperation policies. And so one of the things that I've said also is for governance, risk and control issues, which are usually kind of tricky. It's when you see misconduct that is sort of your straightforward type of fraud, that's a lot easier to identify and it's a lot easier to be able to assess uh, for self-reporting. But when you have sort of a more systemic, like a governance risk or control issue, it can be hard to determine materiality. So it's my view that firms shouldn't consider each instance in isolation. But you really have to take a step back and take a holistic view that includes prior violations or related Mm -hmm. issues. And so that means that in the aggregate, or due to the extent or pervasiveness of the deficiencies, such as repeat or systemic issues, an issue could arise to the level of materiality, even if it may not constitute material non-compliance on its own. And I know that this is something that firms often struggle with in how do you determine materiality. So in some circumstances, particularly if there are incentives to cooperate, it can make sense to self-report non-compliance issues that are not material or potentially material. So my common sense approach to it that I gave in my speech was don't be too cute. If you have longstanding systemic issues that will take years to remediate, you should review it for materiality and disclosure to the CFTC in your annual compliance report. And you should consider having self-reported it to our market participants division, which is similar to, for example, like division of trading and markets in some respects, or, or maybe division of, in- yeah, I probably that's most analogous. So I think that's sort of a good uh, rule of thumb, right? Regulators, just like management, don't like surprises. And so if you engage in a proactive and transparent manner, that'll help to build goodwill or trust. And so if you see something that you think you should tell your regulator, say something to your regulator. So that is generally my rule of thumb, but there is a big but. <laughs> and the but is that recently, I'm not sure in some of the penalties that we've been assessing, some of these eight-figure penalties mm-hmm. for one-off, non-material operational or technical issues, which don't meet any of these sort of indicia that I've laid out for where it's appropriate to bring enforcement, such as there was misconduct, there were financial losses, it was pervasive or particularly egregious, some of those factors. I'm not sure that we are actually appropriately reflecting cooperation credit. Hmm. So I do think, and like I said, again, commissions wax and wane over the years And with that, so do their divisions of enforcement. And so I think it is something really important to to think about is, as a policy matter, if the commission 
does not provide real incentives to self-report and cooperate, then why would a respondent not just zealously defend themselves as they are entitled to do so under the Constitution? Mm -hmm. So that is something that I've just recently also been speaking about. And then that'll lead into my examination by enforcement topic as well, if you want me to go there. Yeah, now. I, I wasn't going to let you off the hook. I actually have it written down, circled on my notepad in front of me. So I, I mean, I love it. You've had a few really good quotes. I let little C compliance slide by. We'll have to talk about that separately. But examination by enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> uh, it's really funny. I'll be doing sort of the most just going about my day and then I'll have like a little something pop into my head and I do have fun kind of coming up with zingers. So I appreciate that somebody is reading, somebody's reading what I put out there. So thank you. <laughs> so to me, what is examination by enforcement besides being maybe something that I thought up of, which I am having fun with? Look, to me, it's where the division of enforcement's imposing a disproportionately high civil monetary penalty for, like I said, one-off, non-material, operational or technical issues with no misconduct, no harm to clients, and no financial losses. And because in my previous role, I actually used to oversee all of the global regulatory advocacy around the world for all the regulators, and also to oversee the relationship and to be involved in supervisory relationships, I know that every other major regulatory authority addresses these types of issues, non one-off, non-material, operational or technical issues, through an examination program that is conducted by supervisory staff, i.e. examiners. The SEC has a division of examinations. And even though FINRA is their SRO and conducts uh, a lot of the regular examination activity, the SEC still does have an exam. We don't have the same thing. We do not have a division of examinations. We do have a compliance and examinations branch for our registrants, and we have various compliance and examination branches in, in all of our operating divisions. But for swap dealers, particularly those that are global, systemically important banks, so to me, I think that 10 years after the enactment of Dodd-Frank with this authority that we've been given, this expanded authority that we've been given, it really is far too long the CFTC to have failed to develop an examination program for our most systemically important registrants. And what we're doing instead is we're relying on enforcement actions. We're relying on these headline-grabbing dollar figures. And it's just no substitute for ongoing oversight by supervisory staff with the requisite ex expertise and experience to actually understand and ensure that our registrants have robust risk management and compliance programs. Look, I, I worked for years many long nights, many long hours. When you go in-house, it's not all like butterflies and rainbows. The no. hours are also long. <laughs> the hours are also long in-house. And so I, I spent years and years to learn all of this. And I think it's important that we appreciate and respect the expertise that bank examiners have. They have years of specialized training and certification. They have more than a decade of examination experience before being assigned to cover a GSIB. Another example, right? So by examination by enforcement, in my view, it doesn't best serve the CFTC's mandate to provide oversight of market participants. It does not meaningfully contribute to market integrity because it's inherently ad hoc. It's not applied consistently across market participants. 
and it doesn't provide a horizontal view to inform the CFTC of potential systemic risk. So those are just a couple of the key points. And so the more and more that the CFTC ventures into looking at technical, operational, or compliance requirements and decides to deal with them in the first instance, right? This isn't a question of sort of you had an exam report, you failed to remediate it, you had a second exam, you still failed to remediate it, Mm -hmm. it gets referred to enforcement, and enforcement comes in. That's very typical in the broker-dealer space. We don't have that. We just go straight to seven figures, eight figures. Mm -hmm. And, And then this comes back to the point about the undertakings. Are we actually... Uh, reflecting and giving credit for proactive identification and remediation, self-identification, self-reporting and remediation, and do the undertakings reflect that? So for me, I'd like to see our division of enforcement do its core mission because it's the only division that can uphold the CFTC's statutory mission to protect our markets from fraud, manipulation, or other abusive practices. It's the only division that can do that. So our division is at the agency, the preeminent expert in prosecuting fraud in the global commodity Mm -hmm. markets. And we've had resounding success, as I detailed in the beginning of the podcast, in using this unique global jurisdiction to seek and penalize bad actors. And that should be the first priority. So I'd like to see the Division of Enforcement focus its talent and resources on cases that are going to bring justice for victims, protect those that cannot protect themselves, and root out misconduct and wrongdoing. So to me, it's very clear there are things that are supposed to be dealt with through examinations and examination reports and findings and remediation and sort of continuous supervision and monitoring and oversight. And there's other things that are can only be dealt with right. through enforcement. Wow. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I'm going to avoid the temptation to draw comparisons or parallels with what we might see at some other agencies. Obviously, structurally, there are some differences, but maybe we see some things that look like the thing you've identified other places. Look forward to the speeches where we're going to hear more about examination by enforcement. And I hope you won't mind if I quote them liberally on social media. Please do. (laughs) Please do. I actually, so I am, I don't know, I am a huge nerd in some respects. And so I think I actually get more excited when I'm quoted in Law 360 or Compliance Week or a law firm client alert or memo Mm -hmm. than the Washington Post or something like that. So no offense to no offense to the print media, but it, it means something when people, because I'm writing about real things. I'm writing about real things that people deal with every day, that it's their job to deal with, that I've lived through, that, that I take pride in, and that all of these legal and compliance professionals take pride in every day. And so that's why this is so important to me and why I'm not just out there talking about whatever is the hot topic of the day, I also have really tried to emphasize and speak out on these core things like enforcement, compliance, administrative law, and so on. Yeah, very well said. Well, Commissioner, you've been so generous with your time today, and and I just want to thank you for that. But before we close out, are there any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to talk about on the enforcement front, crypto, Anything else you'd like our listeners to, to hear straight from Commissioner Pham? One of the things that's really been a privilege to be a commissioner is when you come right down to it, I think I have two core functions of my job. So one is I vote on things and I need to have good judgment and I need to make good decisions and I need to 
uh, vote in the public interest. And the other one is that I meet with the public. I meet mm. with people. And when I meet with people, I learn things. And when I learn things, it means that I have better judgment and I make better decisions. So I encourage all of you to engage with your government. I think it's very important that the government is transparent and accessible to the public. And so that's why you've seen me very visible and very out there. And, and I think it's important that people know that the government is there working for them. That's why I left my uh, career that I spent all those long hours on <laughs> to come and serve my country. And it's a privilege. And, and I just thank you all for being interested in what the CFTC does and in talking to me and in listening to what I might have to say. Thank you. Thank you for engaging with us and our listeners. And thanks again for coming on the Insecurities Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on social media with your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Enforce underscore Update, and you can find Chris at Ekimoff CPA. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.